Neighbors, patrons, comrades, agent provocateurs, and outside agitators, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, and we're connected internationally this evening. Uh, our guest is Andre Demise. Andre is the Nathanson Fellow of History uh, at York University in Ontario. He's a contributing editor uh, at McLean's. He is also, from what I understand, a very uh, influential figure in the Toronto fashion scene. That's just what people are telling me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's true. Get out of here. I, more and more people are saying, you know what we say down here, more and more people are saying it. Um, listen, I, I have had my, uh, my dandiest propensities used against me before, and I will not stand for it in the course of this podcast, okay? Well, let me tell you, uh, I'm, I'm, I support it because, uh, you know, I own a seersucker suit. You yeah. know, I I own, you know, oh se- I, I own several pink you shirts. You own a straw hat, too, and sit on your porch with a mint julep? See, that's, that actually hits me a little hard. About why, why are they working so slow? What do we pay them for? Ah, come on. <laughs> Sorry. I think Searsucker's suit, and I automatically think, like, some, like, southern, like, uh, uh, like proprietor of a sharecropping plantation. I mean, I understand. Now that you say that, it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually Long dude with a beard and everything. Oh, you went down the wrong path there, my friend. <laughs> I don't care about your Weepala flag, uh, your Weepala flag behind you. See that? I don't care about your signifiers talking about carmads and all that. All I'm seeing is white dude in a seersucker suit. You done fucked up. I'm sorry. You know, I probably shouldn't have told you the topic for this because <laughs> you're hitting me with it. You're hitting me with it even before we get into it. Oh, what's that? Oh, uh, so, um, well, I mean, I've been, I've been finding myself more and more in like, like organizing in activist circles, trying to articulate reasons we should prioritize like class base and labor organizing explicitly. You brought me into a class reductionist conversation. Well, listen, I'm going to make a fun though. It's going to be fun. Believe okay. me. Cause it's right. so funny because the next sentence was like, like you can't even say that sentence without like blowing it up and saying it's a reductionist conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be great to have this uh, stress right chat. This is, this is fantastic. I'm going to make it fun. I promise. So well, be- <laughs> well, here's, Here's what's I'm funny. I'm fucking with you. I'm totally fucking with you. I know. So the, okay. the, the interesting part is, so our, our super producer, Carl, who's a remote, um, he is also an organizer, and he's running a, uh, an, uh, an important uh, state campaign for state rep. We're trying to unseat a moderate ex-cop uh, with a, a, a progressive uh, leftist woman, Muslim oh, woman. Good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, good stuff. So, so, so I asked Carl whether he wanted to join in this conversation. He was like, no, nah, I don't think so. I'm good. <laughs> So he doesn't. He, he, yeah, he's he's tapped out. He's he's tapped yeah, out already. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, but uh, so are you? You're familiar with the book White Fragility, right? <laughs> oh God! Oh no! Is this is this where the white podcaster invites a black person on to talk about white fragility? Just no, to, like, just to like unfuck up all of the terrible uh, takes that white pa- white podcasters have had on this book, White Fragility. Is this what we're doing? Well, here's here's the, here's my, and it's so funny that you asked me that because Carl and I talked about this. I don't think there's anything to be learned from like making fun of the seminars. Like that's actually pretty easy. Like it's not yeah. that it's not it's not that it's not funny. Um, I think you and I both have done time in the corporate world, and so the idea of doing this in a corporate setting is actually pretty funny. But 
I don't, I don't think there's anything to be learned from that. That's why, like, the way I've been thinking about it is this idea has been, um, you know, there's people in organizing circles who are doing book clubs on this, right? And I think that the critique of it is that not that it not that we should make fun of the people, but we should think about it as a strategy, and that it, there's got to be a way to explain that that's not going to produce that those concepts are not going to are not going to achieve any organizing or activist goals. I don't think. Oh, you absolutely. see what I mean? That's Here's, why I, I look I look at it a little different. This is this sounds like a really good idea. Hey, um, so what we're gonna do is, uh, in response to white people's racism, we're going to read a book by a diversity trainer, a white diversity trainer, mind you, whose idea of combating white supremacy is to individuate the entire concept of white supremacy to people's minds and imaginations, mindsets, attitudes, behaviors, and so forth. And they're going to take on the problem at an individual level, almost purging it from themselves, like, uh, I don't know, corruption from an infected wound. And uh, and and the success metric for this, like the way that you know that anti-racism is working, is the farther up the bestseller book or bestseller list this goes, the less racism we have. So once a white woman is rocketed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, having written a book about white people's racism, that's how you know that we're actually overcoming. I just have you like have you read all the way through this book or um... no it's that's one of the that's one of the things i was i was going to mention is i read about about half i guess it was about 80 pages 100 pages i found it very repetitious too almost like gratuitous like Gratu it's a, yeah it is it's, it's, it is. A, it's the same story over and over that makes people feel bad here's um something that she's never going to be able to admit in her book the job that she's being paid to do in the workplace necessitates that she not ever introduce a systemic critique in this book. Now, she can use the word systems. She can talk about how it is that systems perpetuate white supremacy and also how the discomfort that people have with having that conversation produces some very bizarre results. But here's here's a, a problem with that. And I've, I've talked about this before when I've been interviewed, in the, especially in the past couple of weeks, is that um, people act like systemic racism is what happens when People with racist attitudes, mindsets, biased beliefs bring those mindsets into the workplace, almost like a virus being introduced into a vulnerable host. And then it propagates throughout the system and then produces bad outcomes for people who are dependent on that system or on people who are affected by that system. And that's just not the way it works. Policing, for example, and this is, this is the one where it just drives me absolutely nuts when people talk about, well, we should be able to reform policing and that police unions might have a, a role to play as if police unions are a fucking things. I've never, I don't know about you, but I don't know of any other unions where management and the rank and file occupy the same space at the same time and they work together. I don't know how the fuck that works, but that uh, police unions might have a role to play because if you hire good officers, give them anti-bias training and all this other like magical bullshit, it's going to, it's going to change the system. Except... The system itself, the system of policing itself, like we've heard before that it derives from slave catchers. In Canada, we talk about it, it deriving from the plains clearers, like people that perpetuate genocide, perpetuated genocide against indigenous peoples, like we know all that. But what people don't often point to is where did we get the concept of modern policing? Where does policing come from? 
Policing comes from Sir Robert Peel. Sir Robert Peel, the Home Secretary of Britain, who uh, who, who, who who had a hand in creating the uh, the uh, the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was itself an occupying force in Britain's colonialization of Ireland. So, if your concepts of policing are being derived from an occupying army, and you're replicating the logic of that occupying army, it's always going to be an occupying army. It is, in and of itself, systemically racist. You cannot purge the racism from a system that was designed via racism in the first place. So I, 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 I don't understand how, for example, when people talk about, well, in the corporate world there's systemic racism, or in government there's systemic racism, or in uh, housing there's systemic racism. It's like all of these systems that have violent effects on the individual. Like I was, I was having a conversation with somebody a little bit earlier today saying that, you know, one of the most insidious and often invisible forms of economic violence is housing policy. Because if you have people competing for housing in a market, like people are looking like the, the very basic human need, like one of the most basic human needs is to be able to shelter oneself, like to be able to feed and to shelter oneself is just like, that's just a prime, like base, you have to have this need or, or there are going to be some terrible and damaging psychological and, and physical and social effects on the, on the human. If you can't do that, then you've got some fucking problems. And yet we create a marketplace for finding housing. I don't even see how that's possible in a society that calls itself humane. And uh, if somebody wants to rent, they're basically competing alongside people that want to rent out Airbnbs short term. They're competing alongside people that want to own condos and own houses because these condos and houses are themselves often rented out. Like that's why people buy multiple properties as for the purpose of renting it out. So they're all competing for shelter in the same market, even though they have very different intentions and that creates variegated outcomes. One of those outcomes is during the middle of a pandemic, you have like tens, if not hundreds of thousands of hotel units open, just sitting there empty. And you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, depending on which country you're looking at, of people that have no homes to live in and you would think okay well the the most logical thing to do is that if you have an open space you must offer shelter and quarter and whether it's going to be the government that steps in to help maintain these units or gives you the money so that you can maintain it yourself or whatever like offer some sort of support so that we can match the people who don't have homes with the available space but we don't do that and that to me, that that's economic violence. You to maintain the property values of these units, you're going to enforce homelessness on everybody else. And these this is itself an insidious system that stems out of uh in um early modern America, North America, or what are you gonna call it, Canada, North America, and so forth, the ability to own property is restricted to certain types of people. And there were racial and there are class prescriptions or proscriptions. So if we haven't altered the logic, if not completely overhauled and revolutionized that system, and we know that we haven't because redlining and blockbusting was a thing right up until the 1970s, we know that we haven't actually reckoned with the harms the systems have done. And yet we, want, we, we seem to think that racism and white supremacy is something that is contingent on the individual that they bring into these systems. No, these systems were fucked up to begin with. I'm sorry, that took a very long time to get to the point, but it's just, I, I know that we're supposed to be talking about white fragility, but I don't see that critique anywhere in this book. No, no, no and, and this is exactly, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example that uh, is local to me. The housing, 
uh, you, you bring that up. And I think everything you said is exactly right. Um, but in our, in our small city, just like in a lot of big cities and, and even medium-sized cities, um, the Democratic mayor is a, a, a corporate real estate spokesperson. You know, um, you know, so we've had gentrification, we've had um, inequality driven further apart, which then uh, uh, requires the cops to crack down because the new shops and the new fancy cafes uh, got their windows broken or, you know, whatever it is. <clears throat> and I don't see how, as you said, doing like internal work as a corporate exercise uh, is going to help. But we, we need to be, we need to somehow reject partnering with say corporate real estate or landlords. Like they're not our partners. You know what I mean? And, and I don't, I see some of this sort of corporate anti-racist stuff actually sort of making it more difficult to explain the, the actual systemic things. Can you, uh, rephrase that because there's a point i want to make but i'm not sure it actually dovetails with what you're going to say okay um i i just mean that um the power the 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 political power structure in in this city is very tied to real estate it's a very similar to new york obviously new york being you know yeah 100 times bigger but right um and i don't see a way I certainly don't think uh, like a white fragility sort of anti-racist thing is going to help, but we need to be able to make criticisms. These people aren't our partners. Um, and I think we look to partner with them uh, and it just makes, uh, it, it, it makes organizing and activism against them to do the actual change even more difficult because they're, um, they're not interested in that. They're interested in just like doing the corporate seminar. And okay. That's that's my. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. And, okay. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure what I was going to say next was going to like uh, track with what it is that you're saying. Have you noticed that the um, tone and tenor of the protests changed somewhat in the last three weeks? Remember the first two weeks, it was just a militant uprising. It was a rebellion, and then in the last three weeks two or three weeks, it's been completely different. Have you noticed that or is it just me? Um, there's I've like people that are like, uh, you know, dancing with police officers. There's people that are like, there's, there's city officials, there's politicians taking a knee, even in the protests. There's a call to work with politicians and enact reform. There's a definite call to vote in November because uh, apparently this, this, looming and imminent fascist threat requires an immediate response that takes place i don't know four or five months from now like have you noticed that or is it just me um well the short answer is yes uh the sort of long answer is that um i went to a, an action a, like a march this morning um there's a lot of groups that have been doing things because we've had a lot of um you know police violence over the last say 10 years i mean forever but in in recent history uh and so there was a guy who was shot in a wheelchair by about four cops there's a video of it um their family with black lives matter organized this march it's about 100 people just in a weekday morning it actually worked out pretty good closed some streets and everything um i had to walk 
home to prepare for a thing I did this afternoon. And I look in the paper or the online or online paper, and they had done the same thing. They were like kneeling with the cops. And I'm like, I don't know how that, I, I don't think that's going to fix anything. Like it's like, it can't be a show. Like, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's becoming more, um, yeah, like a novelty act. I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it. But no, I, I mean, do. You just, you just did. You, you totally did. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if you've read Mark Fisher's um, Capitalist Realism. I know a lot of people don't like Mark Fisher for various reasons, but I think he says something that in this. I'm not going to say the two. I'm not going to say the the, the the two words. But go ahead. Wait, 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 what two words? Everybody. Well, he's known for the Vampire Castle. That's. Oh a, yeah, that's yeah. Well, I mean, whatever. I mean, fucking grow up. But um, he he says something early on in the book that makes like complete sense if you understand the nature of capitalism, but also like if you're if you're somebody who's familiar with the Frankfurt School, like this is going to leap out to you that, uh, you know, capitalism is like the creature in John Carpenter's The Thing. It's this infinitely plastic entity that is capable of absorbing and assimilating anything with which it comes into contact. Paraphrasing here, but that's like close to what he was saying. <clears throat> and the way that you know that a system is in the process of recuperation is if the people that were your enemies a very short time ago are now repeating the very same things that you were saying. They're, they're repeating the slogans, they're uh, engaging in the same type of signifying. That's how you know that they are engaging in the process of recuperation because once they can meet you, at least aesthetically, close to where you're at, then it actually weakens your arguments against this. It's like, well, we're, we're doing exactly what, you, what is it you want us to do and what, what more do you want from us? But then the, on the other hand, the people that begin talking about healing and having cooperation within the system and so forth. That is also the process of recuperation, even though they may not know it. What the people end up doing is validating that the system still has authority because it's something to be worked with and not warred against. You know what I mean? Yes. So in, in, in reference to what you're saying here, um, when we take the pressure off the existence of the system, and start talking about ways to cooperate and work with it so that we can reduce these harmful outcomes. What you then know, like they're never going to give up what it is that continues their existence, in which, in which case, if we're talking about um, corporations and uh, systemically racist entities under capitalism, it's capital, right? They're not going to give up what it is that makes them rich, that makes them profitable. So when you see people doing this whole like blackout Tuesday thing where they had this hashtag and this is where I think the corporatization of the movement happened was right on blackout Tuesday. You can point to a before and an after because it happened immediately after is when you be, when the music industry and the entertainment industry gets involved and starts, uh, you know, making these statements about Black Lives Matter, talking about the the harm that they're reconciling themselves with and trying to do better. Then you noticed every company was coming out and giving these confessionals on social media about how much harm they've done and, and how they're beginning to realize now that there's just so much farther to go and they, they want everyone to feel welcome. They want everyone to feel together and American. Have they actually given up anything though? Keep in mind, during the Bernie Sanders campaign, these are the same people that everyone was calling for guillotines and torches for just a couple of short months ago. And now these people are trying to work with us because they're on our side and we all want the same thing. No, we don't actually want the same thing. What I want is your eradication. I want you to no longer exist. 
I, I want there to be an existence of a vibrant and cooperative socialist arrangement between people that stops the accrual of wealth being gathered to the pocketbooks and into the arms of a few to the detriment of the many. That's what I want. So regardless of how you feel about me as a black person, take that out of the picture. I still fucking hate you. I hate your existence. I hate everything that you stand for. But now we're trying to find ways because we become afraid of the, the, the flames that are leaping from the buildings that were set on fire. And we're afraid of the broken windows and all the graffiti and the vehicles that are being stolen from dealerships. We're afraid of the tear gas canisters and the rubber bullets. We're afraid of the riot shields. We're afraid of the people that are, that are, that are being arrested and all the, all the masks and the violence taking place in the street. We're afraid of all these things. And we want to find a shortcut to not end the conditions that bring about these uprisings. We want to find a shortcut or a workaround around that so that we can just feel normal again. And that's what I, that's what it felt to me like you're referring to is we're trying to return our way to normalcy and completely ignore the conditions that created the uprising in the first place. So no, you can never fucking work with these people. It doesn't matter what it is that they offer you. It doesn't matter what reforms that they propose. The only thing that's important is what works for the mass movement, what works for the masses of the people. And what works is an end to capitalism. Anything short of that, you can't fucking work with these people. So it, it appalls me that they're trying to. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I, I, the, the other really stark example for me was uh, just last week. Um, I, I, I like to smoke weed. It's it's fun, but it's not it's not quite legal here. You know, there's always a gray area, but there's a little bit of illicit left to it, and I and I like that. So I kind of I'm in Canada. Uh, yeah, so yeah, you, can, <laughs> you, you you know what's up. We only got uh, it like last month. Like, let me not boast. Go ahead. <laughs> we have a medical, but it's very uh, anyhow. Um, and what what the uh, the corporate co-op of the of the not even the Juneteenth holiday, just the idea of, of Juneteenth and what it was, like how quickly it went from like a thing that was like a little bit like, like I know about my shit, like I, I, I know my history and I can make decisions until like it, it being sponsored by J.P. Morgan Chase. And, and it was incredible because it happened, I guess because all of this is going on, it happened quickly from like people were like, well, when did you learn about it? Did you know about it? Now it's, you know, co it's, it's been co-branded. You know, they'll talk about it at the Super Bowl next year. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, been, it's, it's extremely strange to me. And, and, and that's why I, I, I struggle. Like I said, in the organizing spaces, um, I think one of the things that has helped me, there was a critique. It was actually a, a critique of white fragility in uh, the, the New Republic, but it also uh, provided sort of a lot of a lot of facts that that kind of stuff doesn't even work at the level <clears throat> at the level that it's supposed to not only does it not only does it do the capitalist work for them it doesn't even work at the level that you're that you're doing it um and things seem very um that's that's uh super interesting to me so you're you're telling me that jp morgan chase was like promoting juneteenth celebrations well you know what i, I don't want to speak out of turn so i don't know if they did Okay. Uh, but I I do know that there was a um, there was a corporatization of it. Um, there was I know uh, I think Amazon even gave the white collar you know non warehouse people the, the holiday. 
um, yeah, it went from, and I don't know whether, um, you know, in Canada, what, what kind of tradition it, it had, um, but it went from being fairly, you know, a lot of people didn't even know about it to something that companies were having to deal with, make statements on, et cetera. So it was, it was and, it, and, it, and it happened within the span of a week. Oh, okay. I, I almost, I almost wish that that had happened because I had a drag ready uh, for J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, I mean, please, uh, let me tell you something. I would, uh, as we are in Wilmington, Delaware, because uh, they're, um, they're, pred they're, they're uh, the companies that sort of like preceded J.P. Morgan Chase, like the the conglomerate of banks that came together into the mishmash, like the the the. I guess Matt Tybee would call it like the vampire squid that we now. Yeah, it was it was a uh, first USA uh, yeah, bank, yeah, yeah. Uh, bank of Chicago. Um, so two of them, Citizens Bank and Canal Bank, um, had a policy where they would accept they would accept slaves as collateral for loans. So enslaved people, and this is uh, in the mid 1800s. So I think it started in like like late 1820s, early 1830s, all the way up through uh, the Civil War they accepted slaves as collateral for loans and because of the defaults they ended up owning slaves themselves this came out back in like the early 2000s and jp morgan ended up um setting up a scholarship program for black students now did they actually did they determine the descendancy of the people that it owned as slaves and try to make any sort of reparation to them no they just took i mean relatively pennies out of their coffers and said okay well here's a scholarship program and that was it people just forgot about it so the if if they if they had actually had anything to do with juneteenth it would have just been it, it that's that's kind of stuff is catnip for me are you are, are you are you ready are you are you sitting down i do you feel because i think go. what's going to happen right now is uh, i'm going to i'm going to do what our friend harvey jk would say get 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 fired up in the evening uh so Producer Carl has uh, has put a link in the in the uh, group chat on the Zoom, and I'll just read the link. Um, CNBC.com. So just the the uh, the NBC business station. <clears throat> this is from uh, the seventeenth, so a few days before. Sure. J.P. Morgan Chase to close branches early on Friday in observation of Juneteenth. <laughs> So go right there. You can click on it, and you can get yourself. You can get yourself all in a, in a nice, in a nice lather. Get yourself in a nice lather about it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's actually kind of wild. I was, I was talking to, and I mean, I've already said what I have to say about J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Like, it was, you know, there's, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's, there's. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing else I really have to say about them other than the, they're full of shit. But there's a company that, um, because I'm, I'm working on a media project with, a, with a few other people. We were looking at different project management services, and one of them reached out to us and asked if they could give us, a, uh, if one of their reps could give us a demo and see if you know their software is a good fit. Obviously, it was you know they're trying to make a sales call here, right? And um, we asked if it was possible to have this Zoom call last week, Friday. So that would have been, um, sorry, I just have a look at my calendar. That would have been Friday the the ninth. Oh my God! Friday the nineteenth. Hello, Juneteenth. Listen, man. I, <laughs> See, maybe you. Just, when did you first learn about it? Yeah, did you just learn I about, learned it? about it? Last, it? I learned about it last Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know what? Yeah. I'm suspicious. My suspicions been raised now. <laughs> okay, the thing you have to you have to understand about me is my mind, like my my actual brain is just it's cottage cheese. It's just mush. Like I I know things, but they kind of leap to my mind the way that like a, a car backfires and then starts. 
because I've got twins, I've got a full-time job, I work in journalism, and I'm a grad student at the same time. Okay, cut me some fucking slack. Um, but which is done. Which is, Fa fair enough. I did, I did kind of rake you over the close at the beginning of this conversation, so I guess that's my confidence. Well, but uh, I well, I will tell you this: when I was saying it, it did not escape my memory <laughs> that you said something earlier. So okay, okay, that's, it's all good. <laughs> Turnabout's fair play. But so on Friday the nineteenth on June. Um, but well, the, no. The thing was, we actually asked him on the seventeenth for the appointment on the nineteenth, and this white man wrote back to us that, "Well, we're we're taking the holiday off for Friday, so can I get back to you on Monday?" Now, all of us in the conversation, except for him, were black people. He's in Canada. None of us have the day off. This white Canadian had the day off. Do you understand how like how fucked up that is? This whole like and and this is what people have been saying is that it's great that Juneteenth can become a holiday. At the same time, who are the people that get to enjoy the benefits of that holiday? This is an entirely classed conversation. Have you heard the story? I wonder what because this sort of uh, intersects this um, a little bit. Business Insider uh, broke it. Uh, maybe three weeks ago, that Amazon, uh, for all of their Whole Foods groceries, uh, they have a, an algorithm, and the model determines um, hot spots for labor conflict. So the store gets like a loyalty oh. score. Yeah, yeah, I heard about this one. And one of the, and not only, I mean, that's sort of weird enough, but then one of the attributes in the calculation is a diversity score. So, like, fostering, like, hypersensitivity and a racial dynamic, they, they feel uh, can sort of undermine, la like, labor organizing. It's so, it's so cynical and disgusting. Um, but anyway, so you, you are familiar with what they found? Yeah, I got that. Um, well, it, it doesn't surprise me very much because black people are overrepresented in, in union participation. Like the uh, the amount of uh, black people that um, are union members are larger than their uh, representation in the the broader American public. So and and they have higher wages, etc. Like the the fastest route for black people to I mean they're not going to close the they're not going to close the income gap through labor participation alone. Like we we know that that's the case, but the gap closes much faster when they are union members and because they're overrepresented in unions and because there is that that history of there's the you know the black radical tradition there is a a very strong um labor history among black people because we know that black laborers have had to surmount so many obstacles not only to just working but also being able to become members of unions that there are strategies that are a century old that have by and large worked to be able to to, to, to um, enable them to engage in organizing, to become uh, union leaders and so forth. So yeah, I can understand. I mean, from a risk management perspective, I can completely understand why Amazon would introduce that metric. I, I mean, obviously it's, 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 it's fucking racist. Like it is systemically racist. At the same time, there's something that the left can learn from that. Like, if your enemies are themselves admitting, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. If if there's more people of a diverse background in this area, it is very susceptible to becoming unionized. 
wouldn't that set off a dinner bell for some people? Like, wouldn't it just be a, a flag to say, hang on a second. So if the corporatist world believes that the biggest threat to them is a workplace that is diverse, then how can I find ways to coalition and work alongside them so that we can achieve the same outcomes? Like we, we both want the same things. We want benefits. We want shorter working hours. We want to be able to earn what it, or we want to be able to earn what it is that we produce in terms of value. We want to be able to, to participate and not just work and have our labor exploited. We all want these same things. Let's coalition together. And I think, and I think this is partially because many white people on the left come by their politics by maybe if it's their own family members are labor union members, but don't have a hell of a lot of contact with black people. Maybe it's they began reading Chomsky and Marx side by side, go figure, in their first year of university. Maybe they come by their politics through student unions or they come by their politics through just becoming completely disaffected from the workplace that exploits their labor. But everybody has their their wake up call, like everybody has their, their waking up moment. And I find what happens with a lot of white people on the left is that they don't ask questions or examine anything much further than their own personal experiences and what they've read. And what you'll find if you speak to people of color, but especially black people, is that there is a long-standing radical history that is very socialist, that is very anti-capitalist, that exists. The reason that it's gone into a retrenchment, especially over the last 40-odd years, is because black revolutionaries either get assassinated, they are political prisoners right now, they are ex exiled, or they become assimilated into the system. But, you know, in, in, in this sort of like reached its nadir in the 1970s is that you see this movement like you can actually track it this movement towards americana and assimilation but prior to that there's this rich radical history that a lot of white leftists don't know about and the the embers haven't cooled yet there's still the vestiges of that radical history if people wish to engage with it but because people oftentimes view blackness as a monolith they themselves don't engage with the very same people that have their own goals, like their own political goals in mind. So we see, for example, in South Carolina, where you know the majority of the black vote goes towards Joe Biden, all of a sudden South Carolina becomes a stand-in for black America. And it's like, oh, okay, well, these, these, they, they're just going to vote against their own interests. What's the point of working with them anyway? But I say all this to say, well, if Amazon is up on game, then why the fuck are you, person on the left, not? Yeah, they're obviously looking at it. Um, I guess I, I think what you said is exactly right. Um, and the fight, if you go back to Fisher's sort of uh, amoeba uh, analogy, and back to what we were both sort of scared of, which is that the street actions are starting to be fairly clearly co-opted. Uh, or sort of the amoebas starting to work its way into those. I mean, obviously there are some um, that are still going pretty hard. Um, but yes, there has been sort of a, a deceleration. We need to make sure that the work that was done before, uh, that's what we need to be propping up and talking about history. Um, and, and, 
and I think that we're losing something. I, and I don't know why people are so. Do, can you can you pinpoint something that you think there's a reason why um, this is such a difficult argument for like white leftists to like absorb that like the the the, the groundwork's already there. Mm-hmm. You could just you could just you could listen to thirty minutes of Fred Hampton. And yeah. you, you would know more than if you sat through a white fragility seminar. You would, but uh, there's, you know, Michael Parenti used to talk about this in the 1980s. And I wish, um, although, like, I, I, I'm really glad to see that there's a resurgence of, there's always these clips. Like, whenever I scroll down my Twitter timeline, at least once a day, I'll see a clip that somebody has posted of Michael Parenti. And uh, somebody made a joke that, and if you know what this video is, you know what this video is, that the Michael Parenti yellow video if you know, you know, the Michael Parenti yellow video is kind of like the ring, except that after seven days, you don't die, you become a communist. <laughs> and there's, but what one thing that Michael Parenti talks about, not in the yellow video, was in, a, in another lecture um, where he said that people had this idea that Marxism was outdated, that Marxism was no longer relevant. And all that Marxism is, it's not, Marxism is not a, political party i mean there are marxist leninist parties but marxism itself is not a political party marxism itself isn't even really an ideology i mean it kind of is but it's also kind of not marxism is a an analysis of capitalism at its heart now there are um there are branches that arise from the question of well what do we do about it but at the heart of Marxism itself is a simple critique of capitalism that asks a couple of very cogent questions. Why do workers not own the means of production? And why does the value of labor power accrue to a particular class? Like those are very, very simple questions. And then you have this whole theory and this whole critique arise out of that. And with the amount of anti-communist work um, put in by the U.S. government, put in by the CIA. And so, like, you literally had the CIA paying people like um, uh, Jackson Pollock to create these, like, these this, this meaningless art. It means absolutely the fuck nothing. Uh, and there's, there's a process over the course of about 50-odd years. And I don't want to get into, and the reason, like, I'm sighing here because is because I'm about to use the words post-structuralist and I don't want to cause trouble for your podcast. Cause... I mean, you can you can drop bombs. That's okay. perfectly fine. People well, I mean, need people need, drums, people need bombs dropped on them you sometimes. Can't, intellectual the thing is, bombs. you can't put everything on, on De Saussure's shoulders. Like, you can't, you know, put put this entire problem on Ferdinand De Saussure or on Foucault. You can't really do that. But there is this conversation that begins to arise in the the mid-1970s and just explodes in the 90s and that has to do with relationships of power among individuals and not relationships of power between classes that's where we we begin to divert conversations into racism as an individual attribute that becomes sinfulness in the minds of people and not a system that is not only important, but essential in the replication of capital. Like there's, there are very, like racism is profitable. It makes people money. It it lets people hold on to their money. It drives down the value of labor. It excludes people from the market. It guarantees a, sur- a surplus labor pool. 
there are many reasons why racism is an actual, logical, self-interested thing for people to engage in because systems encourage it. But because we've inculcated ourselves, and when I say we, I'm talking about people that consider themselves to be on the left, have inculcated ourselves with this idea that it's not necessary to engage in a socialist or a Marxist critique or any of that. I mean, there is any number of theories or any number of political ideologies or ideas that we can pull from. We don't have to stick with this, this old fucking stuffy German that had relevant things to say 150 years ago, but they no longer apply. Like, it's just, we want to do away with these ideas that are fundamental questions that we still haven't been able to answer within the heart of empire. And it goes into where we call ourselves liberals, where we call ourselves progressives, where we believe in this concept of justice. And it's like, but liberals fundamentally believe in capitalism, which is the enemy of the people. Progressives emerged as eugenicists. Like the first progressives were, the first white progressives were fucking eugenicists. They believed in moving society forward, but the society had its boundaries among racial and ability and to some extent class lines. You know, we believe in this concept of justice. I'm seeing this word bandied about now. Justice. What the fuck does justice mean to a black person in America? They've never seen it. They, they've, they will never be able to recognize it because it's something that black people have never experienced before in their lives. So what is all this? It's all an attempt to disperse unity among classes of people and get everyone onto these individuated ideas that have no actual analysis, no critique of the system, but also are, are, are they exist to drive people apart and to prevent solidarity from happening in the first place. Now, this is not to say that under Marxist critique, it's going to just automatically generate solidarity, but I'm sorry, there's a lot of fucking racist white people. There's a lot of racist white people on the left. Like, there's a lot of people who just want their health care. They just want to be able to work five days a week and not have to clock out of their job and then clock in for a shift on Uber or whatever. There's a lot of people who want to do that that are very comfortable being racist towards black people or Asian people. I mean half the time you search on uh twitter for people's history and, and you put the word chinese in there you'll find some appalling shit so yeah. like it's not it's not going to solve racism just by closing income gaps and creating um axes or, or vectors of solidarity but at least you're working towards a common goal you have when you're able to struggle alongside people I'm not going to say that that itself reduces racism but you create a familiarity and you begin to open yourself to other ideas and what i i what i really would want to see is that people not just share a bunch of reading lists and say, you know, read uh, Robin DiAngelo or read Zoranial Hurston or read Alice Walker or read Bell Hooks or whatever the fuck. I'm talking about read the black radical history so you can understand the commonalities in class and then reach out to people that still believe in that history, that still believe in that ethos find ways to work alongside them that's not hard if you're especially if you're doing organizing work as it is then what's what is the problem one of the biggest failures i see right now and i say this as somebody who lives in canada but it's it's hard not to observe when i've, I've seen it firsthand one of the biggest failures is dsa chapters personally it's it's, it's it like the many people who i know that are members of dsa chapters and are not white have the same critique is that it subsumes everything under this bland and um, non-variegated democratic socialist ethos. And to the extent that it acknowledges 
different groups of people and their individuated struggles or their, their collective struggles as members of a certain marginalized identity, it pays lip service to it, but has no interest in what their struggles look like and how to alleviate them through the structures that they have currently. I think of like, I, I've seen a whole lot of bullshit coming out of like the Philly DSA chapter, for example, right? You know, they, the statement that they released on the uprisings, on the killing of George Floyd, on the America being on fire was just so, it was the most insipid, like flavorless bullshit that I can understand why everyone got so mad at it. But this is, but this is a problem that I've seen across, this is a problem that I've seen across chapters is that there's just, there's not a deep interest in what it is that black people are struggling through and against. I think the DSA was involved in uh, in canceling an Adolf Reed lecture. It might have been in New York or Philadelphia. I don't remember what. Uh, I guess Reed. Oh, I I remember that. Uh, I guess some DSA members of color had a problem with uh, something that Adolf Reed had said. Which, whatever. I mean. Yeah, I mean, we could. Uh, to be perfectly honest, we could go hours on DSA, and I will say this: um, Carl did did start the uh, the DSA chapter at the University of Delaware when he was at university. And I, I think even he would agree, if he was allowed to speak on this one, that it deteriorated quickly. Yeah. Part of, that's right. <laughs> oh, Carl all of a sudden has entered the chat. What's going on? Oh, I baited you into this one. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I guess you would agree that it, deterior it deteriorated quickly along the lines that we're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to go into detail. Yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think the wounds are still fresh on that one. No, it's fine. I'll, I'll take the heat on that one. I just I think I think that there's a fundamental failure of white people who consider themselves to be on the left to engage with the struggles of people that don't have the benefit of whiteness. And I, I'm really just trying to avoid saying the words white privilege because I, I fucking hate privilege discourse. But there is at least some because, again, privilege becomes a, a relationship of power between individuals. But there is some truth to the fact that there is bullshit that white people do not normally have to put up with and I, I i don't i think that there's two ways that that are often that that that's often dealt with and please do not place me as being in agreement with robin d'angelo which i know that that's what we're supposed to be talking about right now because wow it, it, it's going to sound like it but i'm really not and that's that because white people do not have to contend with not only like the individual acts of racism that for many black Americans are just a day-to-day -day living reality, but also the long state, like the ongoing psychological effects of that. It, it is, it grinds you down to the bone to have to put up with this shit all the time. And the lower down the class ladder you are, the more often you come into contact with not only racist structures, but racist individuals, you, you encounter it so much that, I mean, um, you know, it was described as uh, racial battle fatigue. Or Dr. Joy Degree would uh, talk about it in terms of um, post uh, post slavery. Uh, what was it? Post? Oh my God! Post slavery or post traumatic slavery syndrome? Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm recalling all of the stuff from memory, so you you, you really got to bear with me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I I I feel that. Um, you know, one of the things I think, uh, just to reflect on the marks a bit. I, I sort of, I agree with you there too. I mean, Marx gives us a framework that we can kind of critique the way that capitalism works. And so when you say something like, well, it's actually working as design, these are the pressures that are being placed upon this, you know, but if you get bogged down in, you know, uh, 
you know, cotton counts on the factory floor. That's not the point. Um, it's just a way to like meet people where they are, like on their on a material sort of level when you're community organizing, um, and you find out about them and you get involved in sort of their issues, and it actually feels good. And so I'm always very skeptical of anything that any kind of organizing that doesn't uh, that makes people feel bad. I, I, I think is uh, I think Marx Marx sort of leads me to that that concept um, because I think people get bogged down with like reading lists. Um, I I agree with you on that. That reading lists without an end goal in mind are it's I mean it's good to read stuff, but if you don't have a direction that you're trying to go with it or a thing that you're trying to accomplish out of reading, it's it's kind of masturbatory. And I think that there's just way too. I mean we know this because this book has gone to the number one. Uh, um, item on the bestsellers list, like way too many people are jerking themselves off with Robin DiAngelo's book. Like one of the the most like just horrid things that I got from this book, um, and I'll I'll have to pull it up and maybe I can find the the exact package, passage for you. But it's where she positions the response. It's it it's white people's responsibility to end their oppressive structures, and it like maybe at first blush when people read it and maybe what she intends to say is that well white people created these systems so they're responsible for taking the systems down but if you read it past the surface level what you're also seeing is that white people are the only ones capable of really dismantling the system it's almost like like the black struggle and black revolution means practically nothing it's just like no 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 this is our responsibility we'll take care of it when it's like but why, the, why should i trust you why should i trust that even if you try to dismantle the system that your ancestors created why do i trust that whatever arises in its wake is not going to be a bare replication of that because what have you learned different and that's where to me black radicalism has a significant role to play because you have to threaten the structures there has there like and and, and this is why again um i saw that there was a difference between before blackout tuesday and after blackout tuesday before blackout tuesday people were fucking afraid like I think part of what's causing so many things to change so rapidly, I call 2020 the year of shit we could have done at any time, but chose not to, you know, where the Confederate flag is taken out of NASCAR and, and the Confederate flag is no longer welcome in the U S military. Like people can't, uh, you know, put the flag up in their barracks or whatever the fuck, um, that, uh, and Jemima is now being yanked off of store shelves. And there's just like, uh, the, the, the letter B in black will now be capitalized according to the associated press, which is, well, the thing is, you know, the, the thing is, be, I, because I work in journalism, I've encountered this so many times where I've asked when I write an article and I capitalize the letter B in the word black, if I'm referring to black people, an editor will come back to me and say, well, the AP standard says it's lowercase b. So we, you know, that's, we, we go by the AP standard. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about the AP standard. I'm a, I'm a human being and I'm telling you that I'm not referring to a color I'm not referring to the color black that you would uh, go to Home Depot and pick out a shade of. I'm referring to an ethnic group. It's capitalized. Fucking capitalize it or I'm yanking the article. And sometimes I get my way on and sometimes I don't. But now the AP is going ahead with it. And I'm like, why? Why now of all times? Why? Why? Why is it that now all of a sudden there's just so much willingness to accommodate? And what it is, it's, it, it is that process of recuperation where it's like, okay, well, we're going to meet you on these non-material but aesthetic and emotionally significant items. So you can meet us on not scaring the fuck out of us anymore. And that's why you've seen after the, the whole Blackout Tuesday event, 
I, like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it kind of feels like the process of struggle and revolution is now being subsumed into the corporate world, into media representation and into academia. Have you seen that or is it just me? No, I think that's exactly right. And, and it didn't, I just, as you're talking, I just keep thinking that the title of this is going to be Fisher's Amoeba because yeah, it's just getting, and, 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 and everything I, and I, I, somehow I'm thinking about how technology is, is, um, is pressuring it cause it's, it's, that's, it's accelerating it. So while intellectually I, I know that it's being co-opted in the, in these way, these material ways in front of me, it's happening so fast. And it's happening in this intense time where all this other stuff Notice is happening. Notice that everything we've been arguing about, everything that's just been tearing people's friendships and relationships and tearing politics apart, everything that's been happening over the last four years has been taking place over the last four. We're doing like a fast forward recapitulation of everything that we've been doing the last four years in four months. It's like 10 times speed. I I mean, I fucking hate it myself. Uh, every everything as from, somebody as somebody yeah. who suffers from you know moderate to to crippling anxiety, I hate it <laughs> because everything <laughs> it, everything's hyper. It's like uh, hyper normalized. Everything's like uh, hypersensitive. It's, it's too much. It's not too meant much. to live like this. We're not. Meant, we're not. And I think what what um, happens alongside this uh, whiplash effect of everything just happening so quickly is that we no longer have the ability to find an ideological principle and stick to it and struggle for it regardless of what's happening around us. I think all of this is designed to distract. It's designed to, if you want to use the word discombobulate or confuse, it's any anybody working for PepsiCo that saw that TikTok video and called a meeting to yank Aunt Jemima from the shelves beyond the beyond the decision to yank Aunt Jemima from the shelves doesn't really have to think about much else, do they? I mean, they've got a fairly comfortable job. They've probably got benefits. They're doing fairly well. They've made their contribution to society. Now, you, the viewer, scrolling through social media and seeing that, probably have a whole hell of a lot of other considerations on top of everything else on top of the world fucking falling apart like once we emerge out of this we're still dealing with an earth that's going to cook many of us into non-existence we're still dealing with the after effects the the long tail and second and possibly third waves of a pandemic we're still dealing with uprisings once all of this stuff calms down we still have our basic basic reality that under capitalism we are going to face oppression as working class. Like, as working class people, we're going to get the shit end of the stick after all that is said and done. These are things that these companies, that a lot of these academics, these are things that uh, these, uh, these, 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 these TV personalities, Oprah Winfrey is not going to have to worry about not being accommodated in a luxury clothing store. She doesn't have to worry about that shit. I mean, it's happened to her it happened to her she said something about it and now it's not going to happen to her but your average black person who's been followed in a marshall's or a tj maxx is going to continue to be followed in the marshall's or the tj maxx if they sit down at the bus stop and pull out a book and read they're still going to be stopped and frisked by cops if they're on their way to work they're still going to be harassed by transit officers like all that th those realities don't simply disappear and that's why I 
hate the way that this conversation is going. That's why I say that it's being sort of subsumed or it's, it's beginning to become gatekept in media, academia, and so forth. Not that, I could, not, not that black academics don't have their own shit to deal with, but the vicissitudes of life that regular working class black people have to deal with, which includes the threat of death. Like you could leave your home and not come home that night because you're dead. That is a very distinct reality for a lot of black people. But that conversation is now being pushed out of the mainstream and what we're having conversations about is a fucking microaggression. Like, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, I go back right to the first move. I mean, the, the first move of that is being, in cap, being uh, you know, captured by this idea that PepsiCo did a PR move to rebrand premixed, uh, you know, pancake shit just to sell more shit. Like, that's not... That, that uh, I mean, just even the first move of that is so transparently cynical, uh, it, sh it shouldn't even go any, you know, any further. And that's why I tried it. Like, as you said, I think we're being distracted from making uh, consistent uh, arguments against these pieces of the system rather than, um, you know, running around and being co-opted. And I think that's what scares me is we're not we're not keeping our eye on the ball sort of thing. I mean, that's, I think it's it's pretty clear how I, I feel about all of that. And I don't want to make all of those critiques without any kind of uh, solution. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to have the answers here. Nobody has the fucking answers. Like, we're all trying to figure this out together. I just I just think that the, the, the one means that people have to counteract all of this is engaging in acts of solidarity. And not just acts of solidarity, but relationships of solidarity. That's that's pretty much all we have left. We're not going to we don't have the money. We don't have the guns. The government has the money and the right wing has the guns. So what do the rest of us have? It's just like all we have is each other. So get the fuck over this, you know, this discomfort with racial conversations. Get the fuck over this fear of 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 uh, of, of whether it's like insulting people or offending or whatever. And let's actually have some really difficult but edifying and constructive conversations so that we can actually fucking do something about this. I think that's a perfect way to leave it. Um, Andre, I appreciate you uh, you coming on. Um, I'm glad it turned into that. I had a, I had a great time, and, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. likewise. Um, and I know that you're not going to edit out all of the uh, all of the mental interruptions that have me looking like a jackass out here. So I'm I'm just gonna have you know that if I see you in these Twitter streets and you fuck up, I will roast you. I am gonna I am gonna drop the quote tweet on you, just so you know. I I I, I would expect nothing less. I would expect nothing less. All right, man. This has been good. This is good to talk to you. I appreciate. I it. I, I, I appreciate it very much. Thanks a lot. Yeah, take it easy. Eh? Yeah. Bye.